Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and in the cave with me tonight we have Flick Ford. Hello. Hello Flick. And we've got the return of Emma Westwood. (laughs) I'm like a sequel, aren't I? A horror sequel. (laughs) It feels like a really long time. It does. It's nice to have you. It does. It's a a long time in uh, showbiz, shall we say. It's it's nice to have you back. (laughs) Thanks Sally. Um, On tonight's show we will see the lives of four very different brides-to-be in M. Baker's debut documentary, I Am No Bird. For our retro title, we're going to go all the way back to 1933 with James Wales, The Invisible Man. Uh, the first film, though, that we are going to discuss this evening is one that has very big shoes to fill. <laughs> uh, it's Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep, a sequel of sorts to Stanley Kubrick's 1980 masterpiece, The Shining, based on Stephen King's fairly recent book of the same name. So, struggling with alcoholism, Danny Torrance, now played by Ewan McGregor, remains traumatised by the sinister events that occurred at the Overlook Hotel when he was a child. His hope for a peaceful existence soon becomes shattered when he meets Abra, a teen who who shares his extrasensory gift of the shine. Together they form an unlikely alliance to battle the True Knot, a cult whose members try to feed off the shine um, of innocence to become immortal. Flick, what did you think of Dr. Sleep? Um, I... I'm I'm kind of confused by this film. I I feel like the film is confused by this film. Uh-huh. I I'm not sure that it has decided what it wants to be. So they have this sort of um it's you know positioned as a sort of sequel to Kubrick's um 1980 film as you're saying and it kind of has so many elements of that film particularly towards the end where they do this amazing recreation of huge um amounts of the set from from um Kubrick's classic. But I don't know, it also has this kind of weird after-school Goosebumps special feel to it. Yeah, it does, doesn't <laughs> and it? And <laughs> I'm, as we, as I'm sure it get, gets mentioned a lot, I'm a total scaredy cat, so I went to a very late screening of this at um, the Westgarth, uh, Palace Westgarth, and it was kind of a perfect setup because it was like a really stormy, windy night, and the carpets, my friend pointed out as we were going in, she's like, oh, they're like really similar to the Overlook. Um, <laughs> I just was like really distracted by that for most of the film. I was like, oh, this is very similar. Um, they so should have showed of, it at the Asta, really, because yeah, they've got that Overlook perfect. bar cafe there. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, um, so it kind of, I, I was set up to be scared by this film and found myself laughing at it for a lot of it. I was not <laughs> into it at all, really. I, I like aspects of it. I thought, um, I'm not sure who the actor was who was playing uh, Danny's mum, but she looked so much like Shelley she Duvall. She was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. she was she? the absolute standard of the film. When it first opened with her, um, the sequence with her and young Danny. Yes, um, I was getting ready. I was like, yes, this is going to be really good. Yeah. She even like nailed the voice. Like she oh, was amazing, amazing. Her, her yeah. on-screen energy and mm-hmm. even like a small, really small thing. I love just to say, I love The Shining. It's like one of my favorite films massive fan but like even the bit where um Shelley Duvall's 
she got that thing where like her ears kind of come out through her hair, like yes. yeah, it? monkey and ears. Yeah, I used to get them ears. as a kid. Yeah, <laughs> and they do that for this actress, and I just yeah. thought it was like she was so good. And so there's a lot of like really diligent attention to detail, which I think if you what about what about Henry Thomas as um, yeah. Jack Nicholson? I didn't even realize I that was him until <laughs> I don't know I how told. I felt about that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought he looked pretty good from the side. He, he kind did. of you know he, yeah. he's actually it's interesting because you know when we were doing et it was what's what's henry thompson a uh, thomas been up to lately and mm. mike flanagan films basically and he's yeah. in the house on haunted hill yeah, yeah. another yeah. mike yeah. flanagan yeah. Show, yeah. Yeah. yeah i i don't know it's it's a difficult one i i feel like um Oh, I don't know. I feel like there was so much going on and so many different storylines that never really went anywhere. There's this character that you meet at the start who is using her powers to um, lure men who are hoping to have sex with young underage girls into this cinema theatre and then to she marks them and um, she uses she's a pusher. I think that that's what they were saying. Like she pushes, she's able to persuade people to do whatever she wants. Um, and it's a really interesting setup, and especially because Stephen King has um, so so often in his films and books that their children are abused in different ways, and they have all this huge amount of responsibility, and there's kind of this real disconnect between the children and what's happening to them and their parents. They don't; they're kind of like these always these lone figures. So it's kind of interesting to have this girl who I think she's meant to be sixteen or seventeen, and the character is meant to be yeah, 15, quite young, yeah, yeah. and yeah, so she's young. Really interesting, and like all of these little interesting things that just never go anywhere. Even like Teeny Town, they bring in this whole thing about like, oh, this is a microcosm of the town, never goes anywhere. Yeah. They all never I, come back to that. All I could think <laughs> when I saw that young um, actor that was playing the the girl that was luring older yeah, men yeah. is if they ever do a live action Betty Boop, she needs to play yes, Betty Boop. So true. Yeah, she, does she does. So she had so. such a fantastic mm. face, and actually, the um ro- the actor who plays Rose the Hat looks so much like a young Michelle Pfeiffer. I couldn't get over it. Did oh, you think so? I didn't think that at all. Oh, really? really? I was really. She's I, quite intriguing to look at. Oh, yeah. I mate. She had a bit of that uh, vibe going yeah. on. And also, I found her an interesting villain. She kind of had this whole like burning seed get up, and then I don't know. I wasn't. It was kind mm. of a weird vibe. Mm. It is. Yeah. There, there are elements I do like. Just to sort of. I don't want to hate on it too much. I mean, I, I didn't like it, but I think that there was something. There's something about the um, returning to Danny as a character was I, f- I find like really fascinating idea um, and I haven't actually read the book so I'm not sure mm. how much of this – maybe people who have read the book will be like, this is great. I think if you like The Shining, you won't like it or maybe you will. I don't know. Like some bits of it are really like amazing recreations but the whole idea of like a child who's gone through this and him turning to alcoholism and needing to in some way – um, quieten the voices in his head and the, the real life, the literal and <laughs> figurative um, demons. And so I kind of I found that quite a moving and interesting narrative. I just didn't like the film on the whole. Mm. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it at a media screening. Uh, so I talked to some other critics after mm. afterwards, and I was like you. Flick. I was quite confused. I I, I was enthralled when mm. I was watching it. When I say enthralled, I was entertained. Yes. I actually watched it from start to finish feeling entertained, but I came out going, do I like this? Mm. 
I don't know. And I'm not sure how I am meant to like this. Am I meant to like this as a Shining fan? Because I'm a massive fan of The Shining yeah, as well. Don't you think the tone was off? Like I just feel absolutely. like it's so weird. It's like a person, it absolutely. felt disnified. It's a, it's, a, it's a Mike Flanagan film. It feels mm, like a Mike Flanagan film, yeah. which I like Mike Flanagan See, I films. Don't even, I don't even know that I, I it felt like a Mike Flanagan film. Do, yeah, there was, well, you know, there yeah. was... A, Aesthetically, it did look like Mike Flanagan's work, but um, yeah, it's. I'll I'll let you talk. I'll share my feelings on it. The other (laughs) critics, I actually said, I don't know what I think of this, and I don't, Mm. and I still haven't really landed on what I think. I think I'm not happy with it because I. But the other critics there were saying. The non-shining bits they didn't enjoy, but as soon as it started referencing The Shining, they were into into it, which Mm. I didn't actually have that experience. I thought once it pitted itself directly against The Shining, even though it it managed to recreate looks like from the first film that, you know, were really quite, you know, well represented, it... It just failed for me because it's the it didn't have the pacing of The Shining. Mm. It didn't have the space in the frame that The Shining oh, has. So bloated. It, it didn't. It yeah. didn't seem to the the pacing was completely different. So, mm. as a fan of The Shining, then it wasn't matching it. So I this is where I yeah my confusion mm. like and I was like what do you what were you seeing in it and they. But they loved it. Yeah. So I'm not. Um, yeah. It's a very. It was a very confusing viewing experience for me. Yeah. I have this. This has been quite pretty well received. I've heard quite yes, a lot of exactly positive feedback, like you were saying, from you know different critics. Um, so I went into this feeling pretty hopeful. The opening sequence of it, oh, yeah. um, I really, really, really enjoyed. Yeah, me too. Uh, but I felt that. When it did move away from the um, its little calls to Kubrick, the Shining stuff, I was very disinterested, like super disinterested. Um, the main thing that I found really interesting in this film was Danny Torrance and his struggles with sobriety. Mm. That was what I found to be the guts of it and it didn't go deep enough for me. That mm. was any time that it moved away from that, um, yeah, I just felt that it completely fell flat. Mm. It did. It almost felt like a Harry Potter book oh, at some so point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was just I – th- I think if it had a focused on the Danny Torrance character – it would have been a much better film. Yeah. yeah. Almost like mm. you could have had that grittiness. I'm just thinking of other Ewan McGregor films, but you could have had that grittiness of like train spotting. Well, there was that kind of, there <laughs> like was one scene that, that, that yeah. was very, that did remind yes. me of train spotting. Yes. It's like, okay. oh, Ewan McGregor and dead children is just, you know, <laughs> maybe what he's got going on. Also, it was kind of weird that the main character, um, Abra, she, <laughs> oh no, this is a spoiler. I won't say it. I just feel like her, her, she never seemed that freaked out by anything. She seemed pretty chill. I know. And I was yeah. like, mm. I mean, like as a child, I don't know. It just didn't. It didn't sit with mm. me. There's, I, there's yeah. a part where they go back to the house of The Shining as mm. well, the Overlook, the hotel. Sorry, not the house. It's a hotel, <laughs> and um, that also I felt was a really clunky plot device. The reason yeah. to for going back didn't actually make sense. They don't, they don't explain it. He's yeah. just like, oh, there's a lot there. of... We're going there. We're going there. Get in the yeah. car. Come on. Um, and, I, and I don't want to say what it is because it yeah. is will act as a spoiler, but it was, it was just... 
it was clumsy mm. and was, um, it yeah. was it, it was trying to stitch those two films together. I think they – this was written by Mike Flanagan as well. So this is a Mike, Mike Flanagan joint, it's okay? It's interesting because – Stephen King notoriously <laughs> um, does not like Kubrick's The Shining. He does not. I yeah. know that Mike Flanagan was very much in communication with Stephen King on Doctor That could Sleep. have been the problem. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I have heard an interview with him where he was talking about how um, he it was really important to him to have these throwbacks, these throwbacks to Kubrick and he was yeah. concerned that Stephen King – wouldn't be very approving of that, but he was like, yep, kind of do what you want, do what you want with it. Um, and Stephen King liked the script, uh, you know, wasn't on set or anything like that, but definitely this has Stephen King's stamp of approval. And it, this is also the second adaptation that Mike Flanagan has done of a Stephen King novel, which is Gerald's Game, which I thought was great. I really enjoyed oh, that. Look, it was it, I thought this was going to be one of the better horror movies I'd seen for ages mm. till it got to the last 15 minutes and then it was like a, a shit stain in the underpants of cinema, <laughs> seriously. I was like, oh, no, you're joking. And it was mm. like it was bad Stephen King stuff also, at the end. Yep. Also the logic of, um, oh, oh, my gosh, I've forgotten the name of the villains in it, um, well, Rose the Hat, the, the logic of them. Didn't the true sense. not cult. Yeah. I like their, I like the name. Yeah. The true yeah. not. That's quite but, good. but it didn't. There was a. I don't know. The, it just. I, I don't think there was enough thought put into the logic. And maybe the books go into that in more depth. I'm sure yeah. the books go into that in more depth. But the film doesn't translate that. There was a lot visually in this film that I didn't like either. Mm. Like the 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 throwbacks to Kubrick, beautiful, gorgeous, and you know he went and he filmed at the at the exterior of the. The actual Overlook Hotel. Yeah. Um, obviously, the interiors were created, but yeah, there was a lot with the true not cult visually that I just thought was awful. Mm. <laughs> like, so awful. Like, yeah. like what, yep. what did you think of the steam? Didn't like it one bit. <laughs> not one bit. It reminded me of one. Uh, I think we covered it really briefly when we were doing Miff, um, The Dead Don't Die, the new oh, yeah, Jim Jaramish film. Yeah. Um, you know what it reminded me of? Buffy. <laughs> Really? <gasps> I, watched, I can see I that. It yeah. And I was yeah. like, this reminds me of Goosebumps and Buffy. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a criticism. It just made me want to watch those rather than watch Doctor mm. Sleep. Yeah. yeah. I feel like if you're going in to watch a Stephen King adaptation, a sequel of sorts to The Shining, that you have certain expectations. Yeah. And I don't want it uh, to be steam. I, well, yeah. They, <laughs> I don't. Also, the fact they were dressed kind of steampunky. I was like, oh. really? Well, they all look like they were from 1994. Yeah. No, yeah. She looked like um, Fawn on Blondes. Yes. Yeah. Is that a problem? I, should, I, I don't know. Yeah. I thought there was a Stevie Nicks kind of vibe going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Meditating all oh, the time. Oh, she did. I kind of like their interior. Um, design of their their uh, what was it a caravan sort of thing that yeah. they had that was quite that was quite nice, but um, yeah look you know it, it is a brave person who uh, follows in Stanley Kubrick's footsteps mm. with The Shining and uh, and yeah I, I don't think that Mike Flanagan managed to do it correctly and also the, just as a side note the cat in it is distractingly cute oh the cat was the cat my was favorite. way oh, too I cute. love it the actually, cat it reminded yeah. me of the dog in A Star Is Born because like the dog in that who apparently is um what's his face Bradley real, Cooper's yeah, dog yeah real yes. dog it's so cute. It's yeah. like it almost derails the film. You're just like, who is yeah. this dog? <laughs> and the cat had the same effect on me. I was like, this is too For cute, sure. cat. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I know that. Yeah, with with Stephen King's blessing, it has come out to be I don't know, not such a great film. 
He has. <laughs> I, I was waiting for Maze Monsters to come out in it. If there was that was the Stephen King thing that I think he was very annoyed that Stanley Kubrick didn't include in the Maze. They actually the hedges turn into monsters in the uh-huh. book. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, that's uh, what Stephen King wanted in the oh. film. So <laughs> Stephen King should actually stay away from cinema, but. <laughs> he, he writes great stories, don't get me wrong, but still, yeah. What was the one that he notoriously really hated? Was it The Lawnmower Man? That he was just like, I'm having nothing to do with that, the adaptation of that? Remember. I don't remember. I don't know. Was. I think it depends on Stephen King's mood yep. as well. <laughs> For sure. And it, it is, it's really, I think, interesting to look at this in contrast to The Shining because The Shining is, Stephen King has been very explicit in saying that that was about him in a point where he was addicted to, quite heavily to cocaine and he was concerned about how he was going to treat his child and his wife through that addiction and um, then this is him clearly dealing with sobriety and I just think there was so much miss that could have been explored yeah, with that, yeah. like so much, so much. And, so that yeah. was really disappointing for me. Um, but there were some really great things that I did like about this and if you are keen on seeing Doctor Sleep, it is currently scre- screening on wide release. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The next film that we are going to look at tonight, before we throw the next film, the first film that we discussed this evening was the adaptation of Stephen King's novel, Doctor Sleep, directed by Mike Flanagan. And the next film that we're going to look at tonight is our retro pick, which is the 1933 James Whale, Universal Monsters classic, The Invisible Man. So, while researching a new drug, Dr. Jack Griffin stumbles upon a potion that can make him invisible. When he reveals his new ability to his old mentor and his fiancée, it's clear that a side effect of the potion is insanity. Jack goes on a violent rampage and the police struggle to hunt him down. I wonder why. Um, (laughs) Unable to see their target while his mentor and his former partner desperately try to devise a plan to capture him. Um, Emma, you're a bit of a universal monsters queen. Uh, (laughs) I think you've got a book on the Bride of Frankenstein in the works and this was your retro pick. It was. So um, what do you love about The Invisible Man? What is there not to love about The Invisible Man, really? I think the, these universal monster films uh, they pl- play a, such a have a, such a warm place in a lot of people's hearts uh, from watching them, maybe of a certain generation as well, even, you know, a generation older than me. It's kind of like that, you know, midday movie, the sort of thing you stumble upon and the things that you watch as a kid that are, you know, super terrifying, but they're not really going to terrify us now. <laughs> also, these are films, even though, and part of the reason why um, I thought of uh, us talking about it today is because um, there's a, a remake of it that's coming out and it's it's not a film that has not been remade before i mean paul verhoeven's polo man in 2000 was a direct was the cherry chase one uh, what was the Chevy Chase one? The you got memoirs me of the invisible man memoirs of the yeah. Inv- yes yep the chevy chase and daryl hannah yep. yeah the 80s yay uh so yeah this you know this there's another one coming out basically another the invisible man and there will never be 
like these 30s films and and rightly so you will never make a movie like these like these films anyway in this climate it just the narrative plays out in a very different way and i think audiences were used to or not used to seeing certain things that now we've seen so many times mm. um so they were very formulaic and they were nice short snappy i mean how long does the invisible man go for it's, it's an a little hour bit hour and something yeah something an hour and 11 minutes mm. i just checked um <laughs> At, but at this time, at this stage, this was 1933, so very early on um, in sound in film, uh, and uh, to have therefore a character that you're relying on his voice basically, and to have him uh, maybe be well, he's sort of swathed in bandages, mm. at, wrapped in bandages at some stage to recognize to actually show his form. Uh, was quite a gutsy move, I thought, to do at that time. Uh, and as an actor, Claude Rains was, it was his first American film. He's a British actor, if you didn't realise watching the film. He's <laughs> so British. And um, he, he, it's, I think more than it, more than people probably realise to have an, for an actor's ego to not be seen yeah. is a really big thing. Um, and and I love this sort of this idea of um, man as God and moral implications and it is man as God. It's never a story about woman as God. Uh, um, so it plays a lot into the idea of male ego as well, um, hence my interest in The Fly. I wrote a book on The Fly <laughs> as well. And that, that film as well is uh, with uh, Jeff Goldblum playing that role was – uh, it was very hard to cast. Goldblum wasn't as big an actor at that time. And um, actors like John Malkovich were approached to do it, didn't want to do it because they didn't want to be hidden by the makeup. Yeah. So there's a number of times, and this was just right for the fly, this was right off the back of um, The Elephant Man, which John Hurt was winning a lot of awards for being under a lot of makeup. But actors are scared of doing that sort of thing. And Claude Rains, we literally do not see Claude Rains until the final shot. Mm. And that's. I saw this really interesting article talking about um, the beauty of Claude Rains and how we're not able to see that in this film. We don't get privy to his beautiful face in this film. Yeah. Yeah, which I don't, thought was really interesting. Yeah, because yeah. it's almost like a, a reveal. Well, it is a reveal at the end, mm-hmm. but it, it's interesting how the film relies so much on, uh, well, like all good horrors, on the reveal, like the yeah. reveal of the trick, the reveal of his face. And, you know, that. It's kind of one, lovely to think that how it, how it finishes with his face finally coming into view for us as um, almost like the opposite of horror. Like it's quite a beautiful Yeah, yeah. Even the, the fact that like I love the origin moments in films. I find them the most compelling. And this film actually has no um, origin element really. It comes in, it starts straight away. He, he is the invisible man yeah, right yeah. at the beginning and he's awful. He's just he's an so asshole. Awful. <laughs> I, was, I was re-watching this and I was like, God, he's an absolute prick. He's so I know, terrible. Like from yeah. the word go. And this is what I find really interesting about the invisible man because with all of our universal monsters that we're very sympathetic towards them and yeah. we, you know, we really sort of root for them. We want them to win. But James Whale has done something really interesting with the invisible man where <laughs> we we don't want him to win he's a total I know, prick he's so he's annoying an and also just the way in which like he um 
He's obviously naked the whole time that he's invisible. And he's just running around the pub, like, knocking people's glasses. I was like, I hate this guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's a total awful. jerk. He's a total jerk. He reminds yeah. me of um, certain scenes in The Simpsons when Homer's being, like, a real jerk to people and just throwing things in people's face. <laughs> like, yeah. that's what the invisible man reminds me of. Yeah. He's got no redeeming qualities <laughs> no. whatsoever. And even, like, poor old Flora, who's just like, oh, I better help him out. Why? Like, I was, yeah. <laughs> what do you see in I him? Don't, well, I nothing. don't understand. <laughs> she was um, is that uh, a little joke on? <laughs> <laughs> That's um, Gloria Stewart, the actress who mm. played Rose in Titanic. She yes. was not Kate Winslet, but the I think she actually won an Academy Award. It was nominated, actually. I at think least she nominated. might have won. Yeah, Maybe? yeah. And For she what? died at 100. Titanic. In yeah. Titanic. Oh, wow. I know. It's amazing. Like this, yeah. you could say a whole life in cinema, but she actually dipped out of cinema for mm. a while and started working in artwork and screen prints mm. and st- really, really interesting person. But James Whale at the time, you, um, this was, so he'd done Frankenstein. Um, and this was before Bride of Frankenstein. This was before Bride yep. of Frankenstein. So both this, uh, The Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein are really heavy special effects films. So in many ways, that's I love these two movies. Like I love them. Mm. Uh, yet nowadays, I'm not necessarily going to see a film for special effects. But it's interesting how uh, like a, a a groundbreaking, very old film, almost a hundred years appeals to me as a yeah. special effects well, film. And didn't they do, we were talking about um, Velvet off air before and <laughs> I think they I think that's Everyone's how they... wondering what they were <laughs> we Black don't need Velvet. To he was in Black yeah. Velvet. They used right. Black Velvet so and then they um yeah. It's kind of, it's fascinating the the mechanics behind all of that. Like I love reading about that. This sort of would stuff. have inc- this would have blown people out of their seats. Well it's still like rewatching it I thought, gee, this is really very impressive. It's, but, it's incredible. You know, 1933 mm. is super, super impressive incredible. what they've done with this film. And I think you mentioned the um, the pub landlady. She was Una O'Connor, the actress <laughs> who plays that role, who's I, very shrill yeah. and loud. I had loud. to keep like, playing around with the volume. <laughs> I was just like, okay, too loud. She's, I can't handle it. Well, she was, actually, she was one of James Wells' favourites. She's in The Bride of Frankenstein oh. as well. And apparently he would, when shooting her, he would wreck shots. And you've got to imagine how much it would cost to film a film at that stage and he would wreck shots because he'd be laughing so much at her. (laughs) He thought she was hysterical. And she is really, you think, take her out of that film, it would have had a, it would have been a slightly different tone. I mean, still James Whale manages, he has, you know, the central stars that have like Gloria Stewart, Mm. she's like so beautiful and, you know, that sort of thing. But um the other faces in the films are always these incredible character faces, mm. uh, and uh, you know they're 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 almost like cartoon faces. Mm. They have so much character to them, and the the kind of the bods you know that were hanging around at the pub were the the fellas, even the cops. The, oh, the you cop know, was great. I love it. Yeah. It's just like his problem is. He's invisible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I love that. And it was so, so nonchalant as well. Yeah. Like it, you see all the time, yeah, the problem is he's invisible. Like it's no big deal. But Every second so, the guy that comes and, in is invisible. Yeah, he just so obviously checked out of his job as well. He's just like, oh, I better sort this out. 
So you're watching these films, and some of them are really quite, you know, not young actors, or they don't, would not appear to be. There's certainly not a time of uh, where you've got a whole lot of pa- people having plastic surgery to appear in your film and sort of seem uh, ageless. So I, I find that I watch these films as well. There's so many textures in his black and white. The snow setting of mm. this obviously was a vulnerability for the Invisible Man because you can see footsteps or you can see him in the rain. Or he has to. I love that he has to wear his clothes when he's eating because otherwise you see his food go through his digestive tract. <laughs> But you watch these films thinking, wow, no one's alive out of this now. And it's kind of strange mm. seeing, you know, these these incredible personalities um, and and just knowing that like cinema now has got so old um, that they just say, yeah, these people aren't around anymore. And there's no one, uh, I think, alive from The Invisible Man. Uh, Gloria Stewart died about oh, a few years ago, but she was 100, which is quite impressive. Mm. Mm. Yeah, wow. And also really interesting. I hadn't thought about the um, where cinema would have been with sound technology. That was really interesting to hear that that would have been – because, yeah, that that would have been such a big factor in how they were able to create multi – because it would have multi-directional sound at that point or – uh, good Maybe question. Not late. Good no, question. I actually think that was later. Because in some ways, you could you could consider the use of sound as a special effect. Still, yeah, it would, have, would yeah. have been considered that at the time, mm-hmm. and especially with a disembodied actor um, mm-hmm. playing that role. So, yeah, it's it's a film that has. So, Whale was really you know someone who had a lot of bells and whistles in his films, especially you know after Frankenstein. Um, but like you said, you know, the bright in Frankenstein, he was a very sympathetic character. Mm. I mean, I don't think the the Invisible Man has the depth of um, you know character study that <laughs> that uh, Frankenstein does. I felt but- I found that really interesting as well with the Invisible Man that there is not a whole lot of character development with any of the characters. And that's not necessarily no, a bad thing. No, it's just thing. right in there it's in just the like, middle. Bam. Yeah, yeah. And it, you were saying as well before, um, you know, sort of comparisons with this with The Fly, and we talked about The Fly recently on the show, and it was upon re-watching that that I noticed that they just get into it straight away, like yeah. even mid-sentence at the start of the film with The Fly. Oh, that's and, great. I love that. But yeah. right, the killer line... But um, uh, it's yeah. it's really interesting to go straight into that and not have this big build up because you don't necessarily need it. And they just mm. end. These films know how to end. They just yeah, end. That's it. And that's uh, you know, that's mm. so much. I think that's uh, can be problematic with uh, current cinema is that they don't actually know where to put put an end to it. And I think something like. Something like Joker, a good example is they should have ended with him on the the car, standing on the car as the Messiah, end it, and then it would be a much on better the, end. Even on the TV, at the end, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's where yeah. I, I thought. Okay, but they this is always it. push it that little longer, and that would longer. have been beautiful, mm. like a beautiful um, closer for Joker. But no, yeah, <laughs> we can learn a lot from these early filmmakers. And I suppose, let's like say. The, yeah, and the fact that it was so expensive to make it, there was obviously. Absolutely. That, that really dictated what I just films think were film made. art is interesting. Going back and watching these films, I think everyone has an idea that art or 
maybe film as a technical art, a highly technical art and an ensemble art as well, will has will only get better. It's the idea of this exponential development, that it will get better as time goes on. Not necessarily. No. There were some things that were, these early filmmakers were doing um, in terms of telling their story as well and getting their story across with a new medium, mm. which um, has never been surpassed. Yeah, I, I don't... I, completely agree I think that that being able to tell us its story so succinctly um has there you know it yeah but it's not done like that anymore no no not at, at all. all like to be able to get this kind of you know good three-act story out within 70 what is it one minutes or something like yeah. that yeah it's really impressive. And there's a, there's a movement like to the camera. You don't need two and a half hours. Yes. <laughs> no, I think you oh, don't need I it. Scorsese, you don't need three and a half hours. Tell yeah. Stephen King he doesn't need that yeah. much time. <laughs> but, yeah, look, you know, the, the, the even the camera movement, you know, there was a lot of really early cinema that could be – was mimicking more theatre and the yeah. stage setting. Like something like Edison's Frankenstein from 1910, mm. that, that was just like filming a, a theatre production. But – you know, James Wells' camera gets right in there. There's all these amazing sort of tracking shots in and out. And they just, they, these were massive uh, cameras and very primitive mm. technology in, in making the films. And uh, uh, they were showing a, a high degree of inventiveness. So, yeah, mm. it's amazing. So if you are interested in... Seeing the Invisible Man. Seeing, get it? <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, it is currently available to rent or buy on iTunes and Google Play. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. So far this evening, we have discussed Dr. Sleep. Um, our retro title has been James Wales, The Invisible Man. And next up, we have I Am No Bird. What do weddings mean to modern women? So four very different women from Australia, India, Mexico and Turkey prepare for their weddings, each one with different significance. To Benet in Turkey, it means the beginning um, and a new family. It means the beginning and a new family. To Anna in Australia, it means being made one with her partner and her God. To Lathanalu in India, it's preserving her culture. And for Dahlia in Mexico, it means her Catholic family's acceptance of her sexuality. Um, Flick, what did you think of I Am No Bird, this new Australian documentary? Um, I feel like there were certain stories that I was really captured by. I really loved Dahlia's story. I mm-hmm. thought that it was really powerful, especially like we've come up to the anniversary of same-sex um, marriage vote. Um, yep. recently and I watched the the documentary around the same time as, as that um, so I was kind of reflecting a bit about where we're at with um, with that and also just um, I just thought her story was really beautiful like I I think yeah I don't know how my personal thoughts on marriage because I feel like it's such an interesting case study when we're thinking about women's experiences and feminism and um, also it's like a cultural ex- exploration as well. So I, I enjoyed the subject of the documentary. I probably was just more drawn to certain stories rather than others. Mm-hmm. But maybe mm-hmm. that means that the documentary allows for people to engage with it in a lot of different ways. Similar to um, when we looked at Happy Sad Man yeah. a couple of weeks yeah, ago where definitely. I, I definitely felt that, that there were some stories that I wanted to explore more. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And it's quite beautifully shot. Um, there's... Um, 
oh, I feel like you'll know <laughs> what this what it was, Emma. But um, the film stock that they've used is so beautiful. Oh, the uh, one, the that? stuff at the start yeah. of these sequences, that's super eight, would yeah, you believe? Yeah, okay. I, 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 yeah. I don't know how they found someone to actually um, process super eight these days. Yeah. It's not that easy. So, it looks yeah. beautiful on screen. Like it really, uh, I thought those bits were really quite poetic and it also has um, different illustrations throughout the documentary with um, animation, sorry. And so it, it's got it's got a lot of very interesting creative choices throughout mm. it. And uh, I think that the, the each story is given an equal balance. I I just was probably most moved by Dahlia's story. I really thought that I got quite emotional when I was she was talking a little bit about how she was estranged from her family because of her when she came out and that yep. and the the way in which she she really connects with her her wife's family and how they've become an extension of family to her and I think um, I also really liked the exploration of the different cultural codes I mean mm. there's some really uncomfortable ones but also some really bizarre. Uh, rituals that I, I mean, one of them, um, oh, what was the first, um, is it Ben, Benye? Yeah, Benye. Benye. They, they seemed like she had like three or four weddings. I was like, this I is know, amazing. I know. I love that too. <laughs> she yeah. really like lucked out. Um, and I really loved her relationship with her, her partner. But it's interesting because the partners in this are really absent. It very much becomes wedding, weddings are, you know, for the women. But didn't you find that unusual with Dahlia's story? Because mm, there are two yeah. brides, yet there was only Dahlia speaking. I yeah. thought that was a, um, an interesting choice. That might have been a choice through pa- practicality. But um, in some ways, look, I don't think it's a fault of the film at all. But I was like, oh, I wish he actually had of, um, had both of them presented as both the mm. women and, and both of their stories. Um, maybe... Claudia or Claudia, who was um, Dahlia's um, wife, didn't want to mm-hmm. yeah. appear in that way. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just an idea narratively they felt that it was, you know, uh, it provided more of a symmetry to the mm. documentary. Yeah, um, but I thought that was interesting because we were talking about women getting married and then we are talking about two women getting married, but only one woman is really presenting her story. Mm. Um, but also this played out... Um, I thought the the role of religion was very yes. interesting. In each one, there was a very strong religious background. Um, in some way, in I some found, way, it was yeah. informing I each one. I found that very very interesting. Um, considering you know, it is a filmmaker that's from Melbourne, and you don't necessarily think that religion has that big an influence on things. So I, I did find that interesting yeah. that religion was such a heavy um, theme throughout this. Yeah, mm. and you can get married without religion. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Sally and I are both married. I definitely got married without religion involved. Um, but it's, yeah, it's. I think that, as you were saying, in the, the anniversary of Australia's Yes Vote, I think this was definitely a response to mm. uh, the vote here, mm. uh, even though it was not solely about um, same-sex marriages. But the, just the use of marriage as an institution. I know at one stage I was, even though I readily and really wanted to go into marriage, um, I found a bit uncomfortable at certain stages and even calling my husband husband rather than partner. Yeah, yeah, yes. um, and now I feel like I can call him husband because mm. people, everyone can do that. There's, now. Um, I, yeah. Like you said before, Emma, I am married as well. And even leading up to getting married, uh, it was something that I struggled with. Um, it seems it seems very conservative. It, it yeah. felt like institutionalized why, in some way. 
is there a place for this in this society now with my political beliefs, with how I, I feel as a female, as how I identify as a feminist? Why am I getting married? Um, why do I want to get married? It was mm. it, something that I, I struggled with quite a lot. And even still that use of the word husband mm. is still really foreign. And it, so it was really fascinating to look at this film and see how these four women were all getting something quite different from marriage. Mm. You know, one of it yeah. was kind of very practical. One of it, you know, the woman from Melbourne, it was really seemed to be based around sexuality, um, <laughs> which was really interesting. Like, Considering they nearly mauled each other at the altar. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. But I think that, um, yeah, this questioning, I, I'm the same as you, yeah. Sally, that sort of idea of, oh, God, I'm doing something really conservative. Yeah, but, it was a really big struggle. But when mm. I when I I did it, and I realised, I guess in especially in Australian culture, being Anglo-Saxon Australian, what came out of the wedding, which I felt, and this is about the weddings too, that I felt what was really common across all of these, and my experience was the sense of community yeah. that comes through yeah. it, mm. that and was that very was strongly yeah, and that them. was something that I didn't anticipate, mm. and uh, from my experience. I didn't go into it expecting that's what I was creating or but it was something that was incredibly special. And I think it wasn't just special for me. It was we we took people away as well. And so we got people we away from them. their lives. Yeah, we literally yeah, we kidnapped them. That's right. And and yeah, the and community. And this is in in the end this shows how these brides uh and it is very much driven by the brides were creating their own sense of community in a whole in four very very distinct ways mm. they were all very different the one in india as well was uh, uh, from a minority tribe in india mm. that's much more sort of uh, like obviously has some sort of chinese or- origins or something like that and um I knew nothing about that culture. So yeah. I found that really fascinating. Definitely interesting to yeah. kind of see how this is, you know, just explored from, you know, four different cultures that we're looking at here. Mm. So if you're interested in checking out M. Baker's debut documentary, I Am No Bird, it is currently screening at um, independent cinemas around Melbourne. On tonight's show, we discussed Stephen King's Doctor Sleep, uh, which is screening now on wide release. I Am No Bird, which is a screening on limited release at independent theatres. And we also talked about the 1933 Universal classic, The Invisible Man, uh, which is available to rent or buy from iTunes and Google Play. In the cave next week, we will be discussing the doco Susie Q about the wonderful Susie Quattro, uh, Judy and Punch, and our retro film will be Sid and Nancy. You can subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, Carl Chapman for panelling and Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Triple R's Plato's Cave, a weekly radio show of informed, passionate and fun film criticism. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch with us via the Plato's Cave Facebook page, Twitter or via the Triple R website.